Today's podcast is brought to you by our podcast partner, Eureka Community Kindergarten Association. Hello, I'm Patrick Hurd, Principal Consultant at Community Business Australia, and welcome to Seen and Heard, a podcast about communities and the events and issues that shape the people and organisation within those communities. My special guest today is Joe Gertz, CEO of Eureka Community Kindergarten Association, or ECA, in Victoria. I've had the pleasure of working with Joe, her board and her leadership colleagues in recent times and I've been very impressed by their passion and commitment to educating the very youngest in our communities, the zero to five years. Our topic today is leading to make a positive change. Joe has a background in retail, business management and governance. She has spent the past 25 years directly involved in kindergarten management and is passionate about equitable access to early education for all children. Jo was a member of the founding committee of ECA in 2003 and assisted the group to develop the original business model. Jo is a passionate advocate for children and the early childhood education and care sector and is involved in many community and government networks and forums that advocate for the needs of both children and the service providers. Jo strives to achieve the best outcome for all children within ECHA's services and leads and support all staff within ECHA to deliver high quality programs to realise the potential in all children. Jo has 20 years experience of participation on committees and boards and is a life member of the Early Learning Association Australia. Jo is also a member of Early Childhood Development Group, providing sector advice and support to the Department of Education and Training in state government in Victoria since 2005. During this podcast, I'll be delving into Jo's background, asking what attracted her to working in the early childhood and education sector. Jo has some insights to share on the vital importance of the early development years of a child. And as with all guests, I'll be seeking her insights on contemporary leadership in not-for-profit organisations, particularly in leading for a positive change. Now, let me introduce Jo. Welcome, Jo. Hi, Patrick. It's great to be here with you today. Firstly, let's set the scene about your organisation, which we use the acronym ECA for the Eureka Community Kindergarten Association. So just give us the background to how quite unique how it formed, didn't it, in 2003 and then the various, the various um, years after that to get to the quite large organisation that it is today. Yes, so um, uh, back in around 1994, the uh, then Liberal government here in Victoria decided it was a wise decision that they took away the management of kindergartens from the Department of Education and um, gave parents the responsibility to manage kindergartens. I joined as a parent in around 1996 and um, put put my hand up for the committee thinking, oh, yes, this will be a a little fundraising committee or something. And before too long, um, being a person that was, um, you know, probably destined to take leadership roles, you know, I found that I was in the president's job and um, <laughs> taking the president, the treasurer's job at the same time because the treasurer wasn't coping with the work cover remuneration returns and the, the payroll. Yep. Um, so by about the year 2000, the um, state government realised there was a problem um, and that these small businesses, you know, some of the really 
really critical aspects of managing a business was being neglected just purely through the um, inability of volunteer parents, you know, being able to do that. So I was part of a review which um, uh, then uh, established, it was called the Kirby Review, and it established that there was a better way forward and that was for organisations to um, take on um, the responsibilities of group employer and bring community kindergartens together um, essentially under uh, some sort of management system. So our primary function was to reduce the burden on parent committees and to provide professional um, employment um, conditions for staff. Look, that that's that model. Obviously, that's been run run out in Victoria now for over twenty years. That's uh, you know that's a, a model for a whole range of sectors in in terms of you know volunteer directors, particularly those that are personally involved uh, in the the service delivery with either a child or in you know the aged care space, uh, you know, an aging parent. Um, that that really hasn't proven successful. So these type of models you've been involved in, obviously, ways of the future. Um, okay, so that's the that's the, the model now that's led to twenty nine kindergartens coming under your um, your management for ECA uh, in twenty twenty one. But again, this this year, Joe, it's been an extraordinary year or the last two years now. Um, life in Victoria continues to move in and out of lockdown. Um, how are you your colleagues coped in these difficult times? Um, and I understand are kindergartens deemed as a essential service in Victoria? Yes, so we've um, operated uh, right through the pandemic until this very last lockdown um, uh, a few weeks ago where they restricted the numbers of children. So we've been able to have all children attending until uh, this year where where we are open for um, children of essential workers and vulnerable children. So so that's been a change for us, but only in the last um, few months with the Delta um, version of the virus, yeah. And, and how you guys been, been coping? Obviously, it's business as usual pretty much given that you're essential service and you've been able to operate. What, what's happened in recent times? Have you had to uh, shut down your services? Um, so we have had a couple of shutdowns because of um, uh, the potential of um, uh, children and staff being exposed to the virus. So we've done some precautionary um, closure days, but um, otherwise we've continued to to operate. The the board uh, is a a group of professional people uh, that bring a a range of skills and they have coped really well and been um, really, I think, significant in their leadership um, along with myself and the management team. And... I think the staff uh, who work in the services have also been extremely resilient, but there's also been a a little bit of, uh, I think, um, maybe resentment that um, our sector in the early childhood sector hasn't been treated the same as schools. And I think teachers feel that, you know, they've been made to continue to work all through this time, whereas uh, school teachers have been uh, protected ah, more. Right, in, right. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that's a, that's a nice segue to, to my next question because federal and state governments, uh, in your case, the Victorian government, spend significant public funds on formal education, primary, secondary, vocational and tertiary. How did state and federal government support early childhood education in your view? 
Uh, is it given a high priority? Yes, yeah, so in Victoria, the um, Victorian state government have invested uh, unprecedented amount of money in the last few years into the kindergarten space for three-year-old and four-year-old children. Mm-hmm. And um, we'll see the introduction of um, funded three-year-old kindergarten uh, next year for um, all Victorian children. Right. The naught to three space is, is more predominantly funded through the uh, federal government through the childcare system rather than the state. Mm-hmm. And, and are they providing support in that space? Federal government. Look, yes, um, I certainly um, think that um, a lot more can be done. Um, I think the federal government see the funding of childcare, as they call it, to be about workforce participation, particularly of women, rather than um, being about early education and, um, you know, making sure that all children have um, equitable access to early education from from birth. So I certainly think there's uh, some additional work that needs to be done in that area. Yes, you're a strong advocate for children's learning from zero to five, as I've learnt. Why, in your view, is is that so important? You know, what are the benefits now and into the future for children, their families and the broader community for that focus? Yeah, well, look, I think it it comes to me that if you go back to the UN Convention for the Rights of the Child, it, it clearly states that all children have the right to an education that lays the foundation for the rest of their lives mm-hmm. and it maximises, you know, the, their abilities um, in life. So we know that 90% of a child's brain development occurs in uh, the first five years of life. And so if you think about it that way, it's really critical that wow. early education yeah. is, in is um, you know, intentional to ensure that um, you know children uh, do achieve their, their maximum potential in life and and what what is what is other research telling us about you know the importance of early childhood education because remember you said earlier that here the federal government's responsible for that zero to three group and their emphasis is about workforce participation about helping women particularly into the workforce and it's more about child minding isn't all child care rather than education as such or learning what's uh, what's the research saying about the importance of this and in what what are you guys doing in terms of advocating for that i suppose as well Yes, well, we're we're constantly advocating, of course, because it's um it's critical that the message around the importance of um, early education in terms of learning and development of children gets across, and in yeah. particular, um, there's been some really great studies done overseas, and I think it's um very clear now that two years of preschool across the globe is the standard, and that we need to be working towards that in Australia as well. The Perry Preschool study in England actually followed the lives of some very disadvantaged and vulnerable children through to now those, um, you know, over 40 years now they've followed those children. And it, it again shows the significance of the earlier the education of those children and and the support for the learning and development of those children and the outcomes uh, that they've had in particular in terms of their own uh, education, their contribution to uh, society and to uh, the the economics, you know, of a country has been significant. 
I'm not sure if you've heard of a, a, a leading uh, professor called James Heckman, but he's from the University of Chicago and he undertook an extensive um, research study around the benefits of investing in early childhood education. Yep. And his conclusion around the, um, the earlier that you invest in children and in particular uh, disadvantaged children, um, that the returns on those investments for countries is absolutely significant. It's a great pay and you know all politicians should make themselves very aware of it. <laughs> I want to come to a, a question about uh, politicians in a moment, but let me just pick up on the uh, on supporting those children that maybe come from a, a disadvantaged community. Uh, and I know that you've done some piloting in one of your Ballarat sites. Is that correct? So um, actually at our Mount Pleasant Centre, yes. yeah, yeah. where we have a large community of um, uh, disadvantaged uh, families. They're a large social housing area as well. Yes. And we uh, have put in place a, um, a program where we've put in more highly qualified staff and more staff. So we've reduced the number of children per staff member and those staff members are more highly qualified. Right. And we've we've done that and put in place a range of um, you know monitoring and measuring of the children's progress purely to um, help to accelerate the learning and development for those children what we know for children that may be affected by trauma is that it has a huge effect on the brain development and in fact can reduce their the size of their brain cortex and the brain cortex is uh, responsible for memory attention mm. uh, perceptual awareness yep. thinking and yep. language, yep. emotional regulation, all of those things that are key for children to be able to, you know, have their brains uh, developing to use all of those functions to set them up for being able to have um, a disposition for learning. Yeah. Um, children who've experienced trauma are already um, very, very much disadvantaged in terms of being able to um, transition into school successfully, to engage in learning in school and to uh, have a sense of wonder about the, the things that they're learning um, so that they'll go on to become adults that may go to higher education but are uh, able to be employable yeah. and that I think we reduce the reliance on remedial programs and of course all of those things like youth justice and welfare if we can um, certainly make some changes for those children in the early years and work with parents as well because they're such an important part of yes. this so yes. As an early childhood setting, we're only a small part, as you understand, and yeah. you know we are part of trying to make change in um, children's lives. But um, it's it's very very important uh, part of it is us engaging with the parents and the carers of those children and helping to build their capacity because we don't want to be blaming people. We we want to actually say, well, we think there's something we can do to to support you and yes. your children. And I can tell you now, all of those parents, it doesn't matter how disadvantaged or what level of education they themselves have had, they all want their children to do well. But sometimes the circumstances are so difficult that it, it prevents them from, um, you know, being able to really um, make, a, make a difference or change their circumstances. So that's where we can come in and try to provide some extra support for the, those children and their learning. So in this Mount Pleasant pilot, let's call it, you've had 
um, you know, highly qualified staff. You've had uh, a better ratio of staff member to children. You've in, have an engagement strategy with the parents as well. So what sort of results are you seeing? So how long has this been going and, and what sort of results are you seeing from this pilot? Yeah, so the type of revolts, results we're seeing is that um, in the key developmental areas that um, children should achieve between the ages of three and five, um, we're actually seeing um, children progress very quickly. They're in this program for two years as three and four-year-olds, the majority of those children, and um, we're seeing significant change. We're also uh, seeing a significant um, change in uh, emotional and social, uh, well, emotional regula regulation, but their ability to, to socialise. And as we know, socialisation is one of the key um, parts of everybody's lives. And to be successful in that is one of the things that we all uh, need in our lives. But the engagement of the parents, it's been really significant. We've held a couple of nights each year, which are um, basic literacy and numeracy and what we've done is uh, invited parents and families along to come and participate in for example a games night and we give them some games to take away so you know we've looked for donations and other things to be able to get some tools for them to go away but what it's done is opened a lot of eyes in terms of how they can play with their children because our programs are all play-based but through that play how they can contribute to the learning of their child and I think some of that awareness has been really um, I think thought-provoking for us and uh, again a success in that many of these children are coming back now saying that they've been playing with mum and dad with these toys mm. and of course that's building those key foundations for literacy and numeracy that they need um, you know as they transition into school. Well, look, that just raises so many really valuable learnings, isn't it, in terms of the, the future of those children. Firstly, I, I work in, uh, with a range of clients right across a range of sectors, but I also work in education with um, early childhood in your space, and but also in the high school spaces. And interestingly, one of my clients at the moment in a high school, um, one of their big challenges is social skills of their students and so you can see that it's got this flow-on impact hasn't it right through more formal education if we don't get that right early and and it sort of just continues to work through the primary years and even to the secondary years and even beyond so yes that the big message is let's spend time on on getting that getting that right yeah, one of the key things there, I think, is play. And as you yeah. know, there are lots of other influencing factors and screen time, etc., coming in that's impacting on that. But um, uh, using imaginative play um, with children is really critical to learn those social, um, some of those social skills. So the second key message I took from that that response, um, Joe, was for parents. I mean, there's, there's no school for parents, is there? <laughs> like, there's no program that, that parents run through when, when they become a parent. They're, it's it's on-the-job learning, isn't it, in that space? So any program like that that helps them understand the influence and the impact they have in terms of their child education, I think is absolutely critical, particularly in these early years where they maybe not understand the, the impacts and potentially even the damage that can be caused by what they might be thinking is the right thing. But their education is equally as important as the children. 
Yes, that's um, very true. And, you know, there are lots of parenting programs and parenting supports available out there, but it's um, hard, I think, as a parent to put your hand up and say, well, uh, I actually think I need help. Um, As you say, there is sometimes just a lack of understanding of what parents can do to really contribute to their child's learning and development. And I think it's hard to get the messages across to, to parents and be, I suppose, parents understanding that being proactive is not saying that you're failing or what you're doing, but it's just trying like anything in life to improve. You need a driver's licence to drive a car, to be quite honest. It's probably a much more important job to raise a child. So it would be nice, you know, to have some sort of um, formal test you need to do before (laughs) you have one, hey? Yeah, that would be challenging to be a, have a license to be a parent. But, um, but yes, certainly education and support, I think, is, is vitally important for, uh, for children. And I'm reminded of that old, old saying that, you know, it, it takes a village to raise a child. So it's not just the parents, it's obviously, you know, the community kindergarten, it's their you know, extended family, it's a range of supports, isn't it, that, that is required to help the development of the child, particularly in these early years. Yes, very much. Let's take a short break to hear about our podcast partner. ECA is an association of 29 kindergarten and early childhood centres working in five local government regions across Victoria. Their purpose is enriching children's lives through learning. ECA focuses on the critical development of a child from zero to five years, the importance of the learning and the support available to parents during these development years. ECHA continues to lead and advocate sector reform, resulting in important government policy and funding reforms that ensure that early childhood education is recognised as a significant factor to improve the outcome for children, families, communities and the country. ECHA staff have a passion and commitment for creating a better future for all children, recognising all children's capacity and right to succeed regardless of diverse circumstances, cultural background and abilities. If you'd like to know more about ECA, check out their website at ecka.org.au. Now, Joe, um, let's go back to the politicians and obviously advocacy is an important part of your role over the last 20 years. And let's just take a, a situation now. You're not talking to me now. What Actually, we've got the, the state and federal ministers for uh, education and they're here with me today and uh, so um, what would you ask them to ensure that Australia has an equitable education opportunities for zero to five years and their families? Yes, look, I think um, we've touched on it, but I do believe um, Australia needs to be investing more um, into the early childhood sector. So um, we invest about 0.5% of GDP here in Australia compared to um, the world average of 0.8% of GDP. So I think there needs to be um, continued uh, investment. But I think there's some other um, key things uh, in terms of, you know, being more equitable and I think uh, stimulating sort of access and that that is to make sure that the um, childcare system as they call it that it 
is more affordable and that, um, uh, yeah. for example, they have a cap on the number of hours that um, your children can attend and they need to raise that cap for vulnerable children. It's too low at the moment. Uh, we need to have vulnerable children being able to access either low-cost or zero-cost um, childcare. I think that they should be fully funding two years of preschool uh, and supporting the state because, as you know, this, the federal government funds a third of the um, preschool year before school but doesn't fund any three-year-old kindergarten. So I think there needs to be a greater investment in kindergarten programs. Um, and, and in kindergarten programs, they've got to be affordable as well. So they really need to, you know, fund. It would be great if they would fully fund two years of um, mm. kindergarten, make mm. it free as some countries overseas do. But the other thing I, I think is a major thing is the, the workforce, that working in, um, you know, early learning, um, childcare or kindergarten, that it needs to be seen as a professional career. It needs to be mm. recognised through, um, you know, the wage for those um, educators because they're all educators are qualified yes. and uh, they, you know there's different levels of qualification but I believe that the early childhood educator is more important than the university professor if that makes sense in some ways in terms of teaching people and helping um, with learning and development I think it's critical what uh, our education workforce does mm, in the early mm, years and mm. should be recognized but I also think early education it's it's got to um, they've got to stop you know, using it as a political football, there needs to be bipartisan agreement that there has to be minimum investment into early childhood and uh, what those programs are that they'll invest into. And so each time we go to an election, early childhood shouldn't be one of the things up there that, you know, politically um, bargaining for. It just needs to be a given. Joe, not only have you, you led a, a um, you know significant organisation in Victoria for quite a number of years now, but you seem to work tirelessly as well to advocate for positive change, and that's the you know that's the topic of our conversation today. So, how uh, just give us some ideas and examples of how you've achieved this in terms of those changes that have happened in the sector over the last 10, 20 years. Yeah, so um, I've been prepared to to get involved at, uh, I think, a higher level and to move outside of just our organisation. So um, I joined the board of the Early Learning Association Australia and I took on leadership role there in, in becoming the president for um, around four years. And that gave me huge opportunities uh, in terms of advocating for the sector and working mm. with, um, you know, peak bodies and other sector leaders. So that that was um, you know something very significant in in my career. I've also um, wherever possible I join um, groups through. Well, there's been many um, platforms and forums for the reform, the Victorian state government reform. Yeah. I've sat on advisory groups to the department and ministers. So wherever I can get involved, um, I do. And I, in particular, um, of course, also represent regional and rural yes. Um, yes. providers, which has been. Uh, really important as well to give that regional and rural perspective but also locally uh, again they they say you know if you want somebody to do something ask a busy person well <laughs> I will always um, take on roles I chair a number of um, you know groups and networks and we work with five local government areas and I get involved with each one of them through their municipal early years plans so 
uh, I think the key to it is not only having a really good understanding of your own organisation, but making sure that you're, you're taking that out to the broader community um, to make sure that everybody, if possible, um, that's got anything to do with the early years and the work that we're doing, um, understands you know the work that we're undertaking yep. and how we can support each other and what partnerships we can form to um, you know, ultimately get the best outcomes for children. Because as you know, from the very start of um, our discussion today, our primary reason for forming was to reduce the administrative burden on parents and to provide employment, um, you know, professional employment. But that changed significantly over the years as um, you know we've grown. So that you know our focus now is around um, you know enriching children's lives through learning mm. and making sure that um, we achieve the very best um, we can um, you know for the outcomes for children that are in our services and through my advocacy I suppose for all children. We're not just talking about the children in in my services. Um, so yeah. So for those listening today, obviously as, as leaders themselves, it's you know some key messages there. You know, get involved. I suppose is the first one I heard, and you got to be prepared to be there for the long game. And it's been a, a long association for you. And along that path, the advocacy is obviously educating. You know, obviously I see your role as an educator. You're educating the bureaucrats of the department, uh, the politicians, the, you know, the local councils, the, the local community. A lot, of, a lot of times decision makers aren't the experts. You know, they need to call upon people like yourself who are leaders in this area to, to you know, to show them the way, to, to give them the data, to explain uh, the benefits, etc., for the investments that are required. So, so some really important key messages there I think for for many leaders thank you Joe and that takes me to the question we ask all our, our guests um, what what's your approach to leadership um, in general yes yeah, so um, I've learned um, you know and developed in my leadership over the many years but I think the key thing uh, for me has been that the um, people that work with me I'd say not work for me that work with me are the most important asset that we have. And so I see my job as a leader is to figure out how to get the best from those people that I work with. And I uh, strive to, uh, wherever I can, you know, look at those strategies that make people in um, my organisation feel valued, mm. um, want, want to work for us, want to work hard on achieving our purpose, and that's, you know, enriching children's lives. Yep. Uh, so I think, um, you know, developing a, a culture where you put your workforce at the centre of it is key. I think also that as a leader, you've got to embrace change yourself. And I'm a person who thrives on change. And so as a leader, I think, you know, to be successful, you you have to be able to continually um, work and drive change through your organisation and bring people along again um, on that journey, because a lot of other people that that uh, you'll be working with will find change hard. I think that um, imparting knowledge to all. So I think one of the things to be careful of as a leader is not to keep the knowledge to yourself, but yeah, to yeah. make sure that you know you're really imparting knowledge to everybody and and developing that learning culture. So um, I'm 
constantly learning myself and constantly supporting everybody in our organisation to learn uh, from, you know, whether it's the board, um, you know, right down to every single one of the educators in our services. But another really good tip that I have as a leader is to remember that every person, I suppose, in every situation is a little bit like an iceberg. Uh, Don't be quick to look at the top of it that you can see above the water but to always, um, you know, be calm and take time to see if you can get to the bottom of it, have a a look under the water at uh, whether it's issues um, for staff, you know, whether it's staff conflict or whether it's staff with high anxiety, you know, well-being at the moment is a critical thing with Mm, with COVID, mm, you know. mm. But I I think, yeah, um, always see every situation as an iceberg and always remind yourself all you're seeing is the top little bit of it and to before you charge along to see if you can um, yeah, find out a little bit more. One of my um, strengths, I did a strengths profiling recently. One of my strengths is, uh, well, the main strength I have is adherence. And so <laughs> I let that get in the way a little bit. We work in one of the most highly regulated Correct. industries, you know, out there. And so quite often I'll say, oh, no, look, it's it's black and white, you know, because yeah. it's you're either complying with a regulation or a rule yeah. or, or you're not. And recently um, a, a coach, so I've been working with a, a coach recently, and she said to me because I explained to her a situation um, and, you know, I felt it was um, a code of conduct situation and that you know I was just adherence to that was going to be you know how I was going to uh, approach this that it was black and white anyhow she uh, was the one that actually said to me now you just need to to stop and think there's a, a better way to approach this and when I approached it from uh, I think that iceberg analogy and mm. said okay I need to speak to you know these staff and just sort of find out more, I was able to, I think, gain a lot more insight and able to problem solve with them and find the solutions that we needed rather than me just going in and saying, well, I'm sorry, you've got to adhere because that's what I would do. I understood them better by looking at um, different ways to do it. And I think as a leader, we've got to continue to look at our approaches, uh, learn that there sometimes are new and different ways to try. Um, And and that way, I think we can, again, continue to uh, be successful as leaders. I heard you mention a coach in your response there as well and you're working with a coach. So I'm interested in delving into, as a leader, you know, the, the importance of selecting a mentor or a coach and helping develop your leadership style and, you know, has it evolved via those processes uh, over your career? Um, yes, look, and it's something that I've come to more recently. Um, I think in um, previous years I was so busy and, you know, busy with my role in the Early Learning Association Australia, etc., that I was learning from a lot of other people and a lot of other CEOs um, Incidental learning, yep, good, good. That's yes, important. that's right. Yeah, but more recently through a, a 360, uh, you know, review that um, my board um, conducted as part of my uh, performance appraisal, I think we together came to uh, an understanding that I, I felt a coach could really support me uh 
in my role and to help me to grow. So I selected um, a, a coach, which it, it wasn't easy in, you know, looking at what was available and deciding um, what you wanted from a coach. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, the coach that I selected, is, it's been very, very successful and um, uh, it's been great to have somebody to talk to um, openly um, and candidly about not, not just, um, you know, how uh, I'm... Um, performing as a leader, but also um, about some of the um, problems that I've been encountering that it's good to have someone else's ear because you can't always talk to other people when you're in a role such as mine for the, the fact that somebody may, you know, divulge what you've spoken to them about to somebody yeah. somebody else. So it's been great in that aspect as well. It's often said the CEO's role is quite a lonely position because of of that very point Um, so that external independence um, coach mentor as well can be really beneficial to someone in 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 your role so great thank you now finally um, Joe uh, CBA clients you know are all not-for-profit providers like yourself um, but they're in a, a range of sectors, aged care, education, disability, health, community services, very broad. But they all have that sort of common goal like, like you've been outlining today, which is about trying to bring positive change for the people in their care or the people they're supporting or educating. So what is sort of finally your messages for uh, those that are listening to this podcast, other leaders um, who want to influence and get a positive change in their spaces? Um, Look, I think um, probably some of the key things for me is around um, ensuring that your purpose uh, for existing is really clear and that it's clear to everybody in your organisation and that the the strategies that um, uh, underpin that to help you achieve that purpose, that, that once again, those are very clear to everybody who works in your organisation and that you're all working together on shared goals. I think that's one of the keys to actually achieving um, success um, Mm. and making sure that the beneficiaries that you're, you know, you're working for are getting the very best that you and your organisation can bring to them. It's, it's a difficult space, the not-for-profit space, because we really have to show the impact that we can have, you know, to, to attract funding uh, and support. The world now, of course, is extremely um, driven by data, so it's really important mm. that we're collecting data, we're measuring our impact, and that um, I think... To achieve the impact you need, the other important element is to, when you're employing people for your organisation, to to really have a robust recruitment process that the those people fully understand your passion and commitment, and that they share that uh, with you and are joining your organisation with a you know a full understanding mm, of mm. Um, how they can contribute. So I think there probably the the key messages that I have. Thanks, Joe, and thanks to our podcast partner, Eureka Community Kindergarten Association, or ECA. 
Thanks also to Derek Tan and his team at Generator, our marketing and communication consultants, for producing this podcast. And thank you for tuning in today. Join us again soon when we talk to another industry leader about issues that shape our communities. Until next time, I'm Patrick Hurd, and this is Seen and Heard.